Hello, good afternoon and welcome again to Cobden Centre Radio. My name is Brian Micklethwaite and this afternoon as I speak, I'm speaking with Detlef Schlichter. Now Detlef, let, let's start right at the beginning. Have I said your name exactly right? Very, very, very well done. Good. And the next thing I want you to say is the title of the book, which is the basic reason I'm talking with you because I've heard different versions. Can you tell us what the title is? Uh, yes, the title of the book will be uh, Paper Money Collapse, The Folly of Elastic Money and the Coming Monetary Breakdown. And do you know when we'll be able to get copies of it and read it? Uh, later in uh, 2011, uh, so it will be after the summer. Uh, I think September is a reasonable good guess, but uh, we don't know for sure yet, but later this year. Okay, and there is also a website called papermoneycollapse.com where you can track the approaching arrival of the book. So uh, if, you, if you are, I hope people listening will want to read the book after they've heard you speaking. And i also like to mention, when I first came across you, you were giving a talk at uh, Christian Michel's, one of his evenings. He's one of London's prominent libertarian organizers, and he organizes a succession of meetings at his home. And you were talking at one of them. I remember thinking as you were talking, oh, I wish somebody was recording this. But it turns out that you did record a very similar talk, which has pride of place at your website, which people can watch. And I, I subsequently looked at it and I thought, it was recorded, thank goodness. And it's very good and I strongly recommend it. Inevitably, with the sort of half hour time slot that we have here, you won't be able to do full justice to what you've been, what you've been saying. But somebody who wants to pursue it, and I hope lots of people will, uh, can, can start with that video. And of course at the website there are lots of explanations and synopses of the book and, and also commentaries on current events. So there's lots of ways to follow this up. But what I'd like to start by asking is how did you first get tuned into these sorts of ideas? Uh, yeah, I think the, uh, the rough idea about the book sort of developed in my head over a period of almost 10 years, I would say. Uh, I mean, it took a long time to really take shape. Uh, I uh, worked in financial markets for 19 years. Uh, I started uh, in my home country in Germany in 1990. Started out as a as a trader in the derivatives market. And you'd been at university in Germany, yes. hadn't you? Where was that? There was at the University of Bochum. Many people, I think, in the UK may not know it. It's not a a very big university. Uh, I, uh, I studied there economics and business and uh, sort of the, I would describe that as a sort of fairly standard mainstream education in economics. We will later speak about uh, the Austrian School of Economics, of course, which has a huge influence on me. And well, it, it, I did not I, get an Austrian education. I was interested that, that just like a number of people I've talked to, you, the, the name Hayek turned up in your course. Just in passing, often in, often in passing in connection with legal issues, something like that, sometimes not even economics, but some people say, hmm, that sounds interesting, and that is the way in, and I believe that's what happened with you. Absolutely correct. It was, I came across Hayek, I had a very good uh, professor at university in Bochum who uh, did courses in macroeconomics, and uh, we came across von Hayek, and I, and I read some of von Hayek's book in German. Uh, Which book was that? Uh, I think it was actually law, legislation, liberty, uh, this uh, law against, yes. book. And it's very interesting because I do think that um, there is a huge, uh, Hayek has a huge following, yeah, I think even outside of the, sort of the hardcore Austrian you know, group. He, he seems to have a big 
in particular in the 70s, he gained a big crossover appeal. I think as people got interested in Friedman, for example, and monetarism, I, th I think people then also discovered Hayek. Uh, I think if you pursue Austrian school economics a little bit further, you realize that in many ways Hayek was later in life probably no longer really a proper Austrian. Uh, I, I don't want to go into the details here of, of uh, Austrian methodology but Hayek was very important I think in the development of Austrian theory in the, in the, in, in the late 20s when he wrote his first book and then in the 30s when he worked with von Mises but later on he developed other ideas which uh, you know are Austrian only really only borderline Austrian but, but I think in a way he has, uh, that helped people get Get access to Austrian exactly. In he, a way, he, he did a service. He seems almost to have been a gateway academic for Austrian economics. I, 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 I think the Mises yeah. himself, which is obviously who, who you got to next, he, he didn't have that sort of user friendliness as far as the academics are concerned. It seems I, I to think me. I think that's absolutely correct. So I think people who are then will get interested in Austrianism as I did and then pursue it further, at some stage obviously come across von Mises, who I still think is the most impressive uh, economist. I mean, I think he's probably, in my view, the most uh, outstanding economist of the 20th century. And I think at some stage, you know, future historians of thought will look back on the 20th century and, and, and identify von Mises as one of the big thinkers. But you're right, he's not as user-friendly. And for somebody who has not had any exposure to Austrian thought, it's probably more difficult to get into it. But once, once, you, once you engage with it, I think, I think you will come across as even the more compelling thinker. Oh yes, I mean there's nothing important that's wrong with him, it's just the insignificant, it, he just isn't prepared to be polite, that's the thing, is he? Absolutely. To, to people he doesn't agree with. Yeah, and, yeah. and I think once you really come to appreciate the clearness of his uh, thought and his, the contribution he made, I think you see that ultimately his contribution is stronger than yes. of Hayek. Yes. Uh, but uh, I think both were very important for me, and, and, but coming back to your earlier question, Brian, it was von Hayek, so I, I then began my career in financial markets. Yes, how did, how did the fact that you'd already been thinking along these lines influence how you did your job? Or did it, or was it the other way around? I think, I think at first it did not really affect my, my work life too much. I mean, I think by the time I went into the financial markets, I would already have caught myself, or at the time I already caught myself a free marketeer or, you know, somebody who believed, believed in limited government. I mean, I'm not quite sure if in 1990 when I started I would have used the word libertarian in Germany. It wasn't a very widely used term anyway. But I was already leaning towards those kind of ideas. But when you start in a career, I mean, the first thing you try to do is try to fit in. So mm. I think the people I work with, they realize I'm, I'm, I'm a free market kind of thinker. But at first you just learn your trade and, and you, you do what the people next to you do. So I don't think it has shaped in any shape or form my work life early on. But as I, my career progressed, and then in 1996 I moved to the UK and worked in the city in London, I, I, I continued my interest in Austrian school economics and in, in Hayek and then later von Mises and Rothbard and other writers. I pursued that as a as a, as a hobby, as a pastime. It was when did it start? When did you start thinking, "Hey, this is starting to happen"? I can feel this, you know, in the puzzled faces of my colleagues who were trying to work out what just just happened on the markets this afternoon. Was it like that, or uh, yeah, I think that it's because at a certain point you said, "I'm going to get out of this and I'm going to write a book." 
when did that start happening? Oh, they, I, I think the uh, the um, well, the, the decision to leave the markets really, I'm or to and to to step out of the markets and dedicate myself completely to an intellectual endeavor and, and write a book that I made that decision in the in this recent financial crisis so I would say it was an idea that had evolved in 2007 2008 mm. and by late 2008 it was pretty much clear set and, and in, in 2009 I spoke to my colleagues the people I had worked with at the time and uh, I, I should make this very clear I had 19 years in financial markets I really enjoyed it you not only because you know it's 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 a, it's a job in which one can make good living but also my very interesting people you know very uh, very interesting people many of them which became friends and so I, I really had a good time there and but I realized I had to step out and I think the development started the first time when I really realized when I began to realize that uh, my, my the Austrian school was giving me insights in financial markets that was probably in the late 1990s and I think one key as early as that yeah so hmm. that's why I was saying I thought you might be about to say something like 2006 or something like that uh, no, what no, happened was, in what happened in the late 90s uh, I think that what there, there was a time uh, uh, I don't know if people are, you know remember today in 1998 a ma major major event in financial markets was the collapse of the hedge fund LTCM uh, long-term capital management and uh, in the same uh, time a bit early in August 1998 Russia defaulted on its debt so we had the Russian collapse and then linked to that because the Russia kicked off sort of spread widening you know risk premiums in financial markets widened and that ultimately unraveled this big hedge fund long-term capital management and in late 1998 uh, the Fed you know, cut interest rates between meetings, lowered interest rates, although the, the U.S. Fed, the, sorry, should I say the U.S. Central Bank, had previously had a tightening bias, you know, f obviously fearing that they were too generous in providing liquidity. But when LTCM occurred and, and risk premiums widened in markets, the Fed cut interest rates to, to stop the deleveraging process. And just having learned about the Austrian business cycle theory, uh, you know, having learned about the danger of artificially lowering interest rates by, via money injections, uh, that was the time when I felt like, oh, this this could be sounds like a little bell. Step. I can almost exactly. hear it. You know, a little sigh. Hey, what's this? Yes, a absolutely right. And and then I think that it was a strange period because. In, in 1999, then, the U.S. economy came back. And in fact, you know, people will remember in 1999 and in 2000, we had the Nasdaq bubble and the dot-com bubble. It yes. was a big time. Lots of people made lots of money in the equity market. It was really a boom time. And, and people were, you know, there, there was a time when probably Alan Greenspan, the chairman of the U.S. Fed, was at the pinnacle of his career because everybody in financial markets said, like, this is great. You know, he, he averted a crisis. You know, this LTM... LTCM and Russia the situation could have evolved into something bigger but he stepped in you know used his power to lower interest rates at the right time and kept the, the, the boom going and uh, people don't have a problem with this because they always felt you know the only so in other words it wasn't people being confused and baffled in 2007 it was people being you thought too happy in the year 2000 Absolutely, absolutely, and and and, and what, what I began to feel at the time, it was like coming from the Austrian point of view, you you realise if you're steeped in Austrian school economics, you you know that if 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 a central bank expands the supply of money and there are lowest interest rates, 
you have many, many consequences. Not just higher inflation. That's the only thing that really the mainstream, in particular in financial markets, focuses on. And this is almost like, well, if, we, if we have no inflation problem, the central banks can just stimulate the economy and the, and the equity market and just keep it going, mm -hmm. and there is no harm. It's almost like a free lunch. And I felt at the time that this was a mistake. And then in 2001, uh, obviously then uh, after some time, the Fed re realized that you know, things were again getting a little bit out of hand, you know, people were becoming too bullish and the equity market was booming a little bit too heavily, so they began to tighten policy again slightly. And then, not surprisingly in a way, the economy immediately corrected, simply for the reason that all the massive liquidity injections had obviously the economy made the economy almost addicted to constant inflows of more money and low interest rates. And once the central bank even removed this slightly, there was a sharp response. And when that occurred in 2001, I mean, 2000, 2001, the equity market corrected. 2001, we had a minor recession in the United States. Obviously, then in September 2001, also the, the terrorist attacks. And then the Fed, obviously, again, tried to stimulate the economy. And this time, uh, becoming more aggressive, taking rates all the way down to 1%. So it's the sense of a, a crescendo that, that you were beginning to feel. I think that's a very good description. Yeah, I, Each of these scenarios, I felt like, well, you were just kicking the can down the road here. You know, whenever the system corrects, we're pushing more money into the system and extend the boom for another round. Yeah. But, and, and this was another thing for me. It's not like I felt like I'm seeing something here that is completely unique or that you know, I'm the first to discover. Uh, there is an entire literature out there that explains artificially lowering interest rates via money production, via, via the injection of more you know, fiat money, paper money into the system. I've got a strange There's image. Many, many I've got a, an old picture in my head at the moment of, of you living a double life. You're nice, safe Mr. Schlichter in your daily job but at night, you study the Austrian school. It's almost as if you're wearing a completely different costume when you're doing it. I think that's a very good description, and that's exactly how I felt. It was a slightly, you feel slightly schizophrenic. At this time, I certainly felt that the Austrian school was not only an interesting hobby of mine, where I read it in the evenings, it's an intellectually stimulating literature, and it's very interesting books, very well written, but I also felt like this is explaining what's going on here. And, uh, and you asked me right another part of my, my day work life was also that I worked with people and with my clients and my colleagues who were very steep, much steeped in the, in sort of the mainstream view of things and couldn't see the problem with, you know, the, the, the central banks lowering interest rates, you know, pushing more money into the economy. It was almost like uh, there's no inflation, so what, what, what can the downside be? And if inflation comes back, then we hike. So the idea that you create capital misallocations, that you distort the allocation of, of capital uh, in financial markets or you know, in the broader economy via extended periods of low interest rates and, and artificially pumping liquidity into markets. I think what people keep forgetting and what was almost completely lost today is that the financial markets are supposed to transfer savings into investments and, and interest rates play a very important part in coordinating these two things. But uh, today, and even if you read the press today, it hasn't changed, it even got worse, I think. If you read the press today, the level of interest rates is, is, is an, it's an administrative decision. It's the central bankers decide where rates should be. And now we are even at the point in this crisis when long-term interest rates, which, you know, in the late 90s did not really used to be the 
the, the main focus of central bankers. Uh, even on those now, our policymakers have clear opinions where they should be. And now, in this current policy mix, we have the U.S. Federal Reserve deciding that long-term interest rates are not right. They need to be lower for the benefit of the economy. So now they even use the printing press to buy long-term securities to, to, to establish market rates that they believe are better for the economy. That's, that's a drastic monetary interventionism that uh, will lead to many unintended consequences. And what I, in this period, what I realized, I was always looking for the point where people would say, okay, this, this can't go on. At some stage, we just have to allow the system to correct, to deleverage. We have to allow interest rates to correctly reflect the extent of savings in the economy. The market should decide, you know, where asset prices are. We cannot constantly boost them with these monetary injections. And I felt that maybe this point would, would have come in 2001. But again, it was not. It was, uh, you know, that the Fed kept rates at 1%. And if you look back, it's very interesting. The housing market, the housing boom that we all know today was the reason behind the the crisis that then started in 2007 and 2008. Well, reason? I mean, in a way, it's a symptom as well, isn't it? I mean, it's not, it's a bit unfair to blame just that one policy obsession. For all, you're not doing that, are you? I mean, it, it was a consequence of the of the lowering of interest rates. Oh, you mean the housing boom? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, of course. Yeah, this, this is you, what you see. It's like as as when when whenever whenever a crisis hit the system, immediately more money was pushed in, and and which market this money would then dislocate. You, you can't really know. You, and, and it happened to be, I think, uh, since the late 1990s up to 2006, 2007, we had this phenomenal boom in real estate prices. And uh, a lot of that was really was accelerated further after 2001, 2002, 2003, during the time when the Fed kept rates very low. So if you look at the data today, it's very clear that by stabilizing the equity market, helping, you know, the economy in 2001 in that recession and then keeping rates very low, that that add fuel to the fire in the property market and the housing market in the, in, in, in the U.S. Yes. And and I, I think the statistics I are mean, it's very, very hard to tease out yes. the exact cause of all this because in politics now you, you see a lot of people shouting at each other, you're to blame, you're to blame, and they're kind of both right. I mean, you know, is it the bankers, is it the politicians, was it the people borrowing money, was it people trying to lend them money? The answer is all of the above, I suppose. Exactly, exactly. And, and I think that this is one of the things when I decided in, in, in 2008 to step out of the market and write the book. My, my goal was not, I'm not trying to identify any, you know, villains here. I'm not saying, you know, this was a wrong decision or Greenspan made this mistake. I, I, I wanted to look at it on a more conceptual, systemic way and just look at, there's something wrong about it. So in other words, it's not a detective story. It, no, it's not. It's not a detective story. In the story. sense that there's a, you end up by pointing the finger at... It, 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 exactly. And, yeah. and I, think, I think the book explains uh, the, the, the key drivers behind the present crisis. But it's not even a book about this crisis as such. You know, it's not mm. another book. Well, there's a lot of history, isn't there? There's a lot of history of previous paper money collapses, previous re-establishment of gold as the basis of currency. Exactly. Absolutely right. There's a lot of longer history in the book, but I think in large parts my book is really a, a theoretical and conceptual analysis of how paper money systems work. Because and when I, when the, I, yeah. the, 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 I was going to say the blog which you, you do, you, you, you publish a series of quite short essays every few days at the moment. I don't know yeah. how long you're going to be able to keep that up, but 
recently they've been coming out thick and fast. And this is not just to sell the book, although there's nothing wrong with that. Plenty of writers have blogs to flog the book, and then that, that's fine, good for them. And that's partly what you're doing. But there's another fundamental reason here, which is that you, you just don't know exactly what's going to happen. You mentioned 2001, the terrorist attack, and how the monetary authorities responded to that. Well, literally a week ago, we had another of these out-of-the-blue disasters in the form of the Japanese events. And you wrote an essay. You couldn't see that coming. Nobody could. But you commented very interestingly on how the Japanese monetary authorities are responding to that in a way you couldn't possibly do in a book. That's absolutely right, absolutely right. I think, I think that's, that's where, the, I mean, the, my, my block is, the idea is that I think we had a very, very crucial point in our paper money system. And I do think, I think we're at the end game. You know, I think what we are in is the twilight of the global fiat money system. And that's not but you, very don't, you cannot know precisely when and what is going to happen. Can. So Nobody. all you can do is to be ready for it and alert to it and interpreting it as it happens. And that's what I'm trying to do with the blog. Yeah. And what the book tries to do, uh, because we spoke a lot about sort of how my views developed during my work life, what I'm doing with the book is to look at the fundamentals of paper money systems. And what I basically say here is a paper money system cannot be made stable. A paper money economy will be inherently unstable. Well, it's and the word elastic, isn't it, that, that it, you've even that put in the title. Greatly, I was greatly impressed when I heard you talk at Christian Michel's about the idea that, uh, which I'd accepted unthinkingly, that because gold is so fixed in quantity, I mean, there's a tiny amount of gold in the world, it'll all, I think you said, it would all fit under the Eiffel Tower or something like that. And I've always accepted the general opinion that, well, if gold is not expanding at anything like the same rate as the economy, well, then it can't work as a monetary system. But of course, actually, that's a feature, not a bug. I think most people will immediately see, if you speak about our paper money system, which is a system in which the supply of money is ultimately completely under the control of uh, privileged monetary money, money producers. And that is ultimately the state by the central bank, but to some degree, the, the banking system that is controlled by the central bank. You know, these money producers can print money, and it's very clear that they can print as much as they like, and, and, and no central banker, no serious central banker can deny this. In some situations, uh, central bankers even readily admit it and, and even advertise it. They think that's a great feature of our system because if there is a crisis, they can just inject money into the system. We've seen it in Japan this week. Uh, so the point I'm making is, this is for me the clear distinguishing factor between a proper commodity money system. In history, people have always chosen gold or silver. And the point I'm trying to make with my book is that the, the fact that these precious metals are essentially fixed in their supply. They can be mined, but only very small quantities. Nobody can quickly change the supply of gold or silver. That is actually an advantage. I think one has to understand what we use money for. Money is a medium of exchange. And it is in the very nature of a medium of exchange that any quantity of it is, is sufficient and is indeed optimal because any quantity of the physical quantity of the monetary asset can accommodate and facilitate any number of transactions. Because if you have demand for money, you have demand for the purchasing power, for the exchange value of money. The physical quantity does not do anything for you. And you can even see this today in the paper money world. Nobody has a demand for a certain number of paper notes. You have demand for what you can buy with it. I mean, a certain number, I don't know, 10,000 pounds or 20,000 pounds or $10,000, are only a desired cash holding for anybody, 
because they, they know, have a rough idea what they can buy with it. So mm -hmm. it's the purchasing power you demand. And therefore, if you have a system of fairly inflexible core money in an economy, uh, any changes in money demand can be accommodated by changes in the purchasing power of money. And, and this is why paper, by commodity money systems, excuse me, like the gold standard or gold systems, have worked for most of human history. And they're going to go on working. And, 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 and they will go on work. You use the word atavism. Uh, you don't use it, you criticize the use of that word to describe gold. Yeah, well, what I found very interesting, when, when, you go to, when, you, when you start analyzing our paper money system, what you realize is that many people readily would assume that uh, you know, a paper money system is just inevitable. A growing economy needs it, uh, it's modern, you know, gold is, as you said, it's, 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 a throwback. Uh, yeah, yes. it's a throwback primitive, from the old days. Yes. It's primitive. Yes. It's, it's, you know, a, a dynamic growing economy needs, needs, needs money. If you, if, you, if you didn't have flexible supply of money, we would have constant deflation, which people think is, 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 is like that's a bad thing. That would yes. be a bad thing. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and if, uh, what I do with my book, I go through all these points and show conceptually, on a conceptual level, uh, why these are wrong. Paper money, elastic money, has no advantages. It is, is not necessary, it's not needed, it's not the natural outcome of the market. In fact, n never in history has a complete paper money system came about as a result of private initiative. It's it always, always come interviewed by the government financing is Yeah, I mean, all, all paper money systems in history, and the Chinese were the first about a thousand years ago to uh, have uh, the first complete paper money systems. The Chinese invented yeah, paper. I was interested in that. One of, the, one of the sort of great historical puzzles which is talked about these days is why China essentially went, it collapsed in about 1500. There was this big naval expedition and then they thought, no, we're not going to do that anymore. And they went to sleep for 500 years. Is that something to do with monetary policy? It's, I'm, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sure in those kind of developments, I'm sure there are so many factors. I, I, I would not want to just all put it down on one factor. It was very but it certainly about, didn't help, did it? Well, I mean, the Chinese uh, regions that began uh, in the sort of early 11th century to uh, convert completely to paper money systems, after some time, they all experienced high inflation and ultimately a collapse of the paper money system. And that coincided pretty much with the collapse of these empires. Uh, the one big exception is actually the Ming Dynasty, which voluntarily abandoned you know, paper money and went back to commodity money. Well, this brings us to the, to the big question in everybody's minds. If you accept Schlichter's view of history, and I think most of the people listening probably will, how does this play out? I mean, you don't know the details, you don't know exact chapter and verse of what's going to happen, but roughly what's the denouement? And in particular, what I'd like to ask you is, so let's have a thought experiment. Supposing you are given the microphone on global television to just tell us, tell the whole world what's what. Is there anything you can say that would soften the blow, that would give us a soft landing, as it were? Uh, what I'm asking is, do ideas matter in the next few decades, or are they just going to get overwhelmed by mere facts? Uh, that's, a, that's a difficult question. I, I tried to give a shorter answer. I mean, uh, Brian, if, you, if you thought that ideas were of no significance, then what are you doing? You, you know, you're talking about this to no purpose, it would seem to me. Yeah, well, I, I, uh, I think ideas matter, but I think, uh, and, and this is probably a little bit different from other people who have even spoken on Copton Radio, or I know I'm involved in libertarian causes or in think tanks. 
I'm a, probably a little bit more skeptical on that side. You know, even Ludwig von Mises said, you know, my, my, my great intellectual hero said, like, you know, it's ideas that make, you know, the world go round. I'm, I'm not so sure, you know, to, to be very honest. I mean, I, I think, I think if I look at how our world has changed and evolves, I think it's much more, I think, what probably, you know, scientists do or technicians do and engineers do and entrepreneurs do and capitalists do. And, and I think the people who change our physical world and invent new things and computers and internet, I, I, I think those people will have a bigger impact on how our world shapes up and develops than social philosophers and economists. I think, if I'm very honest, I don't think my book will, I hope many people will read it. Uh, will it change the course of events? I mean, I, I, I don't think so. I think very few books have done that. And so, I mean, but, but in other words, your basic objective is to just curiosity, finding out what's going on. I, I can honestly say that, that was the starting point why I wrote that book. I, yeah. I, 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 being steeped in Austrian school economics, having worked in financial markets for two decades, I've, I've, I clearly sense that the system is unstable, it's inherently unstable. Mm -hmm. And my book explains why this is, is because of the paper money system and the book goes, and, and I, using a lot of, you know, theory, I don't, I don't want to make, I don't want to pretend here that, you know, I, I invented all of this. I, I think no, the no, literature is there, yeah. but I, 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 I put it in a new light, I would say. I give a new uh, spin mm. to it. Mm. And the, the purpose of the book is paper money systems are unstable, so is our system. It will end. It will most likely end badly, and it will most likely end soon. So what I'm trying to do with the book is, I hope that the reader can understand how our system is unstable, and can make sense then of the developments that we see today and that we will see in the coming years. So I think in terms of having any impact on other people's life, I think hopefully people who have assets or you know, need to navigate through this chaos that, that is evolving over the next couple of years, I think we will have some really, really bad times. I don't think the financial crisis is over. I think this is far from over. It will have many, many more consequences. My, hopefully, if people read my book, they can hopefully make sense of, of how these things unfold and, and protect themselves, protect their own wealth. If, if, if for anybody now who listens and think like I'm a scaremonger or I'm, I'm maybe too extreme, I just say one thing. You know, paper money systems have always collapsed in, in history. None of them has survived. And our system is really not that old. It really uh, has only become a complete 100% paper money system in 1971 when, you know, dollar became internationally an irredeemable piece of paper. Central banks could still converted into gold until 1971. These systems have always uh, ultimately collapsed, and they're always collapsed in, in one of two ways. Either the dislocations became so big that the monetary authorities in charge said, okay, we're going back to commodity money. And that has been done many times. It's even been done in the United States after the Civil War in 1879. I mean, William Pitt took pound sterling off gold. So we had a period there where the pound sterling was off gold. We had a period where the US dollar was off gold. So I think if anybody read my book and, yeah. and, 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 and a policymakers wanted to see, I mean, I, I, think, I think if they went back to some form of commodity money now, I think the damage would be much less. Would it be still a difficult time for everybody? I think yes, because 
uh, we already see that the dislocations in financial markets are so big that stopping printing money and going back to hard money will be a shock to the system. I do think it, some banks would go under. I do think some pension funds would go under. But I think some of these institutions are probably insolvent right now without having to admit it. Uh, they're being kept alive by you know, artificially low interest rates and further injections of money. So I think right now there are two options here. One is either you voluntarily go back to hard money, to, com to commodity money, and accept that this means a, a, a drastic adjustment, or the, the monetary authorities do not voluntarily go back, keep printing money, but then they will have to print ever more of it, ever faster, to keep these dislocations from unraveling and, and in the in the process they will inevitably add new dislocations so the system will get more unbalanced and, and that ultimately leads to the public losing confidence in paper money and that leads to a monetary chaos and a monetary uh, catastrophe. So I think these are the two options. Either you stop... And you, you made it clear you think the second is the more likely. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, yeah. I, I could, and this is again where I come back to my blog. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to change my view on, on, on how this crisis will unfold. And, and th these are the two things we need to really distinguish here. I think there's part of what I'm trying to get across as a conceptual systemic and systematic analysis of paper money systems. There are unstable that will ultimately end. So will our system. That, that is something that I'm not really, I, I think... I That's non-negotiable. Well, I'm, I'm, so I'd be interested if somebody comes back and shows me where my thinking, my logic is wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to listen. Another purpose of the block is also to hopefully engage with people and get mm. feedback and see if, if, if people can challenge my, my position. So far, I've not come across any arguments that have really changed my view on these things. But that's a conceptual point. And then there's another one where we, another aspect of what I'm writing about, and that's what I mainly do in my blog and partially in the book, but mainly now in the blog, is to see you know, how do things unravel in the real world. And you're right, right now I have no indication whatsoever that anybody is willing to go through this correction, to stop printing money, to go back to hard money, to stop the printing press. All indications, uh, everything I see right now points in the opposite direction. Uh, we see ever more of it. And I cannot really, people now obviously say the U.S. Fed will, there's a recovery, the U.S. Fed will stop quantitative easing, maybe even hike interest rates, the ECB may now hike interest rates. I think these are just minor moves. I don't think we're going to see a trend change in uh, monetary policy. I think uh, later this year, many of these central banks will print money again and will, uh, I mean, they're doing it right now. There's, there's, no, there's no question about that. I've got to interrupt you. Sure. I'm a pathological interrupter. And if, no, I, no, if I've done that earlier on in this conversation, I apologize. But um, the reason I have to interrupt you is because this is a, an infinite subject yeah. and you are clearly capable of talking about it for at least another hour in a way that would be of great interest. As I say, you do pretty much exactly that on the video that has pride of place on your website and I do warmly recommend it. I think it's a, a wonderful exposition in a perhaps more systematic and logical and orderly way than you've been able to do uh, with me. But uh, nevertheless, it's been fascinating talking with you, Detlef, and uh, obviously very depressing. But uh, I don't know, it's, it's enjoyable to know what's going on in the world, even if there's damn all you can do about it. And, uh, yeah, and I've sort of enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Brian. And, and I, if I just can, can just add one more point. I, I, I don't think the book is a, is a depressing read, and, and I hope not my, 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 my website is, is, is neither. 
the, the point simply is, I, I think one needs to be realistic here. I mean, I, I think the mm. system is unstable, and I think it's better to face up to it and be prepared for it and look at it. Ultimately, I think people will find a way to to deal with things. I don't think we're going to go back to, you know, sort of medieval times, so we have to all grow our own vegetables again. It, it will be difficult. We will have very, very difficult times, and I think economically a lot of things will change. But I think it's best to face the things that are coming our way rather than, you know, just simply hoping for the best. Thank you very much indeed, Detlef Schlichter.